Thank you, Jim, for all those prayers. A few years back, I had a lunch date with a buddy of mine, and I was, uh, we live up in north of Dallas and Aubrey, so a drive to Dallas is a bit of a drive, and we were going to meet at this particular restaurant, and anyway, so I drove down and got there a little early and waited and waited and waited waited. Finally, I like texted him and no response, so I thought, well, I hope he's okay, and I was imagining the worst, you know, like car wreck or uh, some terrible, you know, disaster. Uh, turns out, when he finally got a hold of me, he says, oh, sorry, I just forgot. <laughs> Great. And uh, thankfully, that doesn't happen that often, but when that does happen, I guess that's probably happened to all of us a time or two. It's, I mean, it's one thing. You, know, you, you hate to think, golly, I wish you'd been in a car wreck or something. More than, <laughs> more than just forgetting me. <clears throat> Nobody likes to be forgotten. You know, the time that should have highlighted the importance of someone actually highlights the fact that you're not important because you're just forgotten. Well, that happening to friends is one thing, family members, uh, but imagine that happening in your relationship with God. I think sometimes we kind of give God ultimatums or lunch dates, as it were, and we just sit there at the table, but he never shows up. We'll go through life and sort of expect that by now, X, Y, Z should have happened, Lord, but it hasn't. And as a result, God, you've just not shown up. It's kind of like Mary and Martha expecting Jesus to come and save the day, but Lazarus dies. What in the world is God thinking? It's sort of, you know, we're sitting there at the lunch table thinking, Lord, am I not significant? Why don't you show up? Nobody likes to be forgotten. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 41, and we'll pick up in the life of Joseph, where Joseph has literally been forgotten. In fact, that's what the text tells us. We saw last week in Genesis 40, where Joseph had been wrongfully imprisoned because Potiphar's wife, you remember Joseph's story all along, Joseph was the favored son of Jacob, one of 12 sons. He was jealous. Uh, he was, uh, his brothers were jealous of him because he was the favorite son, and they sold him into slavery in Egypt, and he became the head servant or head slave, basically, of a man named Potiphar, who was the chief, the captain of the bodyguard of Pharaoh. Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph. Joseph wouldn't have it. He was falsely accused and ends up in prison. And so now he's been in prison who knows how many years, at least he's been in, in Egypt for 11 years, and so who knows how many years he was actually in the prison, but years in the prison, no doubt. One day, Pharaoh's two servants, the cupbearer and the baker, show up. They both have a dream. Jacob, uh, sorry, Joseph successfully interprets these dreams, and one of these men dies, one is restored to Pharaoh, Joseph asks the, uh, the cupbearer, says, hey, when you get back into Pharaoh's presence, mention me, because I shouldn't be here in prison. 
And we're told here at the end of chapter 40, very last verse, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Forgot him. And if you look at chapter 41, the very first verse, we're told after two full years. So Joseph has been two more years now in prison. Two years. That's easy for us to just kind of read. But two years, that is 104 weeks. That is 730 days. That is 17,520 hours of being forgotten. That's a long time to sit at the lunch table, isn't it? But finally, Joseph's lapse in the roundhouse, which is what we affectionately call the prison, come to an end. Finally, he turns a corner. Chapter 41, verse 1. It happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. You imagine seeing cows eating cows? Pharaoh wakes up. Verse 5, he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears thin and scorched by the east wind sprouted after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now in the morning his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh joins the ranks of those in Genesis who have had dreams. And the meaning of these dreams was hidden. And it was strange dreams. I mean, it's like, you ever had weird dreams? These are weird dreams. Fat cows, skinny cows, the skinny cows eat the fat cows. Dream one. Wow. Goes to sleep. Dream two. Plump ears are eaten by skinny ears. How do ears eat ears? And yet, here it is. And he wakes up, and it's obviously something more than just bad pizza from the night before. These have meaning. And he understands that they have meaning, but he doesn't know what they mean. So he asks those he would normally ask, his own Egyptian magicians, and they go, we don't know what it means. Oh, that's helpful. And then Joseph, uh, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer goes, ah, I remember I was in prison with a guy two years ago, and he, has, he can interpret dreams. This is exactly what we read now. Verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dreams. Now, a Hebrew youth was, there, was, was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him. And he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. 
He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. I like that he refers to Pharaoh as third person. He hanged. He didn't say you hanged him. He hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Now, we read a lot that uh, represents a lot, but imagine, before all the hubbub, Joseph wakes up, got chains around his neck, chains around his ankles, hobbles into the prison to do his duties that he's done every day for years. Thousands of days he has done the same monotonous thing with these clanking chains and these prisoners that he has charge over. Then he begins to hear voices in the distance. Louder and louder and louder they're coming. Finally, you, he hears the snap of the lock at the door. Oh, maybe a new prisoner's coming in. The door slams open, and it's these officials standing there, looking around at the scrubby prisoners. And then the chief cupbearer goes, that's him, and he's pointing at Joseph. Joseph's thinking, what in the world? And can you just imagine them fumbling, trying to figure out which key works, you know, the chains as they finally get it all undone and they just pile on the floor and I imagine that they grab Joseph by the shoulder and they are hustling him down the hall and for the first time in years Joseph's chains are silent they just lay in there on the floor well probably a quick bath definitely a shave and change of clothes and a crash course on protocol has Joseph standing in front of the most powerful man in the world. And Pharaoh speaks to Joseph. Verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I like the way the uh, New International Version translates it. Joseph says, I cannot do it. I wonder how long he paused after that. And the, the cupbearer is like, ugh. You know, I can expect another uh, couple of years in the prison or, or whatever. But then Joseph goes on. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he's, he desires. Notice, Joseph's first words that we hear are about God. First words out of prison pointed to God. Joseph had the same response two years earlier when the chief cupbearer and the baker said, we've had a dream and we don't know what it means. What did Joseph say? Do not interpretations belong to God? Every time Joseph speaks, he speaks of God. And he says that to Pharaoh, to someone who doesn't believe in the Hebrew God, to someone who has his own pantheon of gods. He says, God, my God, will give Pharaoh a favorable answer, the answer his desi he desires. So, verse 17. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and ugly and gaunt, such as I have never seen for all ugliness in the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. 
Yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. Then I awoke. I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears full, of, uh, full and good came up on a single stalk, and lo, seven ears withered and thin, and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. Then I told it to the magi magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will bring it quickly about. God will quickly bring it about. Again, notice how many times Joseph gives God the credit. God is doing this. God is doing this. God is talking to you, Pharaoh, and he, he's done it in the dream. And the fact that the dream is repeated twice means God has determined it. It is going to happen. It's not a coincidence. Two dreams. How many dreams did Joseph have? Way back when. Two. How many dreams occurred in the prison with the baker and the chief cupbearer? Two. How many dreams did Pharaoh have? Two. Again, you see this. And the, the connection between these dreams is interesting as well. With Joseph's dreams, he dreamed that the sheafs, they were out binding sheafs, and sheafs bowed down to him. Sheafs are in the dream. In the baker and the chief cupbearer's dreams, it was uh, a dream of life and death. One lived, one died. And now in Pharaoh's dreams, you have a combination of those. You have sheaths, you have life, you have death, and it all comes together. And so Joseph, understanding this, threads all this together and realizes that God is talking. And this would have been a great encouragement to Joseph, not just that, hey, we got a famine coming, but it would have been a great encouragement also that God had not forgotten Joseph. That his dreams that had not yet come true are going to come true worked out for the chief cupbearer and the baker. It's about to work out for Pharaoh, or at least it's going to come true, what's predicted. And Joseph then understands, my dreams are going to come true too. Now again, we talk about Joseph's dreams. This is not his goals or his aspirations or his hopes like, you know, I have a dream that something wonder wonderful is going to happen. No, these are revelations from God. These are promises and prophecies about what's going to happen in Joseph's life. Pharaoh's two dreams saw life and death, richness, seven years of abundance, seven years of famine. And now Joseph goes on, and he gives advice that wasn't asked for. Verse 33, he says, Now let Pharaoh look for a man, discerning and wise, 
and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land. Let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. You know, even if we had never read the Joseph story before and knew what was coming, we could guess who Pharaoh was going to appoint. I mean, think about it. In Joseph's life, back in Canaan, his dad, Jacob, had put Joseph in charge even over all his other brothers who were older. When Joseph is put into Pharaoh's house as a slave, I'm sorry, Potiphar's house as a slave, Joseph rose to the top. He was put in charge. When when Joseph, too many characters in this story. When (laughs) Joseph was put into prison, again, he rose to the top. He was put in charge. So now here he is before Pharaoh saying, you know what, it'd really be a good idea to put somebody over this project. Pharaoh's like, well, who better than you? And we aren't surprised by this. Look at verse 37, which we just read, but just we'll look at it again. The proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there's no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand. That's basically giving him his American Express took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen, put the gold necklace around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee! And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphenath Paneah, and he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forward, went forth over the land of Egypt. Now Joseph was thirty years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. You know the text doesn't mention it, but I kind of wonder when. Joseph rode around in this chariot, and everyone was supposed to bow the knee. How Potiphar and his wife felt about that? And kind of wondered, is Joseph going to, you know, bring justice? Because Potiphar's wife definitely knew she was in the wrong. And yet, we don't read anything about that. Who knows? Probably didn't happen, because this is Joseph's character. But uh, it's just uh, kind of an interesting, uh, interesting question. It's interesting that the last three promotions in Joseph's life happened because an unbeliever noticed the hand of God upon Joseph. Joseph's promotions happened because an unbeliever noticed God is with him. Joseph's Egyptian name, Zaphenath Paneah, 
probably means in Egyptian, God speaks and lives. How'd you like to have that as a name? God speaks and lives. That'd be a pretty good name. Zaphonopaneah. You ever notice how much can happen in a day? There have been some days at the end of the day, I'll lay there in bed and think, what would I have done without today? I got so much done today. Sometimes when we'll fly like across the world, you can do that in a day, you know? You wake up one country in the day in the next country, though with all the time zones, who knows what day it really is. But it's amazing what can happen in a day. Think about Joseph's life. One day he's riding in the sun wearing his multicolored coat. The next day he is in a pit with his brothers laughing at him. One day he is overseeing the household of Potiphar. The next day he finds himself imprisoned in Potiphar's house. One day he is a dirty prisoner wearing an iron collar around his neck with a scratchy old beard. The next day... He is the prime minister of Egypt with a clean-shaven face and a gold necklace around his neck in a day, all because of God. Verse 46 tells us that Joseph is 30 years old at this point. He came to Egypt at age 17. We are intended to do the math. 13 years he has been in Egypt. 13 years. And in this long gap of 13 years of betrayals, of temptations, of shackles, of injustices, of struggles, and many, many awful months of silence and, and waiting on God, God has refined Joseph. We saw last, last week, you remember in Psalm 105, God is refining Joseph. He is preparing Joseph. He's getting him ready. Joseph has become fluent in the Egyptian dialect. Through two different positions of responsibility, he's learned how to harvest crops. He's learned how to manage a large staff, how to lead, how to organize, how to do a lot with a little, how to deal with difficult people. And he's done it all with God's blessing. Joseph had learned that even though others intended it for evil, God intended it for good. He was living proof. Remember also, Last week we saw, two years ago in our, in our story, what was Joseph's request of the cupbearer? When you stand before Pharaoh, remember me. Tell Pharaoh, hey, I shouldn't be here. Fast forward two years, Joseph is standing before Pharaoh. Does Joseph say, hey, appreciate the, you know, the promotion, but I need to tell you, I shouldn't be here. You know, I'm, I was kidnapped. I I was wrongfully accused, shouldn't be put in that prison. At the very least, let's send a dispatch back to Israel, back to Hebron, and let my dad know I'm okay. Doesn't happen. We know it doesn't happen. Because we're going to see in the next chapter, the brothers come before Joseph and bow down for him, none the wiser. Joseph doesn't send word that he's okay. When two years earlier, this was his precise request. What happened in those two years? Joseph somehow got a perception, a, a maturity. Something happened in his mind to where he realizes, you know what? God's going to bring all this about in his time. All I've got to do is wait. It's just a matter of waiting on God. Amazing. 
Joseph had learned that God would bring it about in his time. And, believe it or not, God still had more refining to do in Joseph's life. Remember Psalm 105 we've looked at before, talked about how God refined Joseph until the time that his word came to pass, meaning until the time that his dreams were fulfilled, until the time that his brothers came and bowed down, God was refining Joseph, which means that this new season of promotion and wealth and and unlimited power was also a season of refining. Well, that brings us to our first principle. Been a while to get to it, but here it is. Our first application. Our blessings can draw us away from our walk with God. Our blessings can draw us away. They don't have to, but they can draw us away from our walk with God. Remember Jesus' words to the disciples? It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember Proverbs 27, verse 21? The crucible is for silver, the furnace for gold, and each person is tested by the praise accorded him. You see, it is a test to receive God's blessings because how are we going to respond? Now, Genesis originally wasn't written in Joseph's day. Genesis was written hundreds of years after Joseph, 400 years, in fact, 430 years after, as a matter of fact. Not only Genesis, but Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Moses wrote 400 years after the Joseph event. And I say that to say because in Deuteronomy, the, the, the first reader of Genesis and all five of these books, including Deuteronomy, would have read these words. Listen to Deuteronomy 6 starting in verse 10. It says, When the Lord brings you into the land that he will bring you into, great and splendid cities which you didn't build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn cisterns which you didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees which you didn't plant, and you eat and be satisfied, then watch yourself, lest that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. That's Joseph, isn't it? Joseph's experience. God had literally brought him out of the house of slavery. And the temptation, Moses says, to the original readers of this story was, watch yourself. Blessings can blind you to your need to walk with God. So, we know that Joseph is still in that refining season But instead of being refined in the prison where he has nothing, now he is refined in the place of absolute power where he has everything. Is he going to forget God in this place of blessing? That's the question. Joseph had never read Deuteronomy, but boy, he fit the bill. Think about the the people today who come into incredible windfalls, like pro athletes or superstars that start on YouTube. Amazing. How many of them are still walking with God? Moses warns his nation that the prosperity, that prosperity, one of its greatest temptations is is that we would forget God. We don't need him any longer. Think about our personal walks with God. We are incredibly blessed. Now, obviously, even in our country, we have all different levels of financial blessing. 
But take, even take the spiritual blessing aside. I mean, Paul says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. So spiritually, we're rich. But even financially, even as far as materially, we are rich compared to many other places on the planet. We are very rich. And when we see ourselves like this, it's helpful to see ourselves like this because it reminds us that we need to not forget God, to neglect God. Think about your quiet time with the Lord. Our quiet time with God every day is an act of faith. There's always plenty to do, isn't there? We've got to-do lists a mile long, and we could really get a lot more done if we didn't spend time with God today. Bible reading brings very few quick fixes, and prayer seldom gives us shafts of light. it's, It's an act of faith where we walk with God. Unless we watch ourselves, we can allow our busy lives to drift us away from devotion to Jesus Christ. We will adore our families, our homes, our jobs, our ministries, our vacations, our salvation, all of God's blessings to us. We will adore. And in a sad, twisted irony, those blessings become our focus instead of the God who gave them. It's easy to do. Well, would Joseph forget God? Let's look and see. Look at verse 47. During the seven years of plenty, so this is Joseph's rich, rich years. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Now, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asinat, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So, we are... We're told uh, the year before the famine came, two sons are born to Joseph. So we're about five, six years into the, well, six years, I guess, into the famine, into the year of, uh, years of prosperity. So Joseph is not only at the height of power, Egypt is at the height of its productivity. I mean, it is going well for Joseph. And in this time, Joseph and his wife, Asinat, have two sons. Interesting, there was an apocryphal novel written called Joseph and Asenath. Total fiction, total apocrypha, nothing, nothing uh, in it that we could, we could hang our hat on. But it's interesting that that particular novel says that uh, Joseph's wife came to faith in the true God. Now, whatever that novel may have gotten right or wrong, who knows, it probably got that part right because if she didn't influence him, for against the Lord, then no doubt he influenced her for the Lord. And we know that Joseph did not give up on God because we're told here when he had sons, he gave them Hebrew names. He's been speaking Egyptian for two decades. He's in an Egyptian culture, and he gives them names that are Hebrew, and he credits their names to God. Manasseh, first of all, means making to forget. 
And by that, he doesn't mean that he no longer remembers his father's house. I mean, he just mentioned them. He, can't, he hasn't forgotten them. What he means is he's forgotten the trouble, that all of the pain that he experienced, God has somehow brought relief and calm and peace. And this firstborn Manasseh is making to forget all that pain. Second son, Ephraim, it means uh, fruitfulness. And he says, once again, God has made me fruitful. Both of these sons, making to forget fruitfulness, Joseph names them this because of God and because of what God has done in Joseph's life. I think most of us can relate easier to Joseph in prison than Joseph in the palace. I mean, I mean, after all, none of us are this kind of wealthy. But I think we can see our, also see ourselves in a place in the prison because the place of the prison was not so much like for us, we don't relate to that because we're in prison, but we relate to that because we can relate to sitting at the table when our friend hasn't shown up. We can relate to feeling in a place of obscurity but it's those places of obscurity that force our dependence on God because he's all we've got. When we don't have what we determine we need, we depend on God. Our dependence on God is obvious. But a lot of times it's really easy to hold with open hands something we don't want anyway. You know, say, Lord, I'm surrendering my nothing to you. Please, take it. You know, we surrender to God the life we don't want because we don't want it. Open hand, no problem. But then when we start to climb the ladder and one rung leads to the next, and now we're standing at the top of the ladder and we are literally at the pinnacle of success, it's pretty tough to hold that with an open hand because, after all, it's been hard road to get here. We don't want to give it up. Along with our fear of surrendering to God comes this predictable, almost apathy of the spiritual life, where it's easy to drift away from God. You know, our toughest trials, our toughest tests in life really aren't trials, but they're blessings. It's like what Moses said to the Hebrews, don't forget God. God's going to bless you. It's going to be great, but don't forget him. When you're there, when you're experiencing God's blessings, don't forget. Joseph didn't forget. Whether he was in the prison, he gave glory to God. Standing before Pharaoh, he gave glory to God. When he was in power and was accountable to hardly anybody, but just Pharaoh, who hardly never even gave him an annual review, Joseph gave glory to God. No matter what happened, Joseph was trusting God. Amazing. Amazing. In the next chapter, we're going to see in Joseph's life, uh, when his brothers finally come back into the picture, that his father, his father Jacob really struggled to hold blessings with an open hand. Remember, with Joseph, he had a closed hand and finally released him to go check on the brothers, and boy, he felt like God took Joseph from him. And so we're going to see next time around that... Um, Jacob's doing the same thing with the son that now has replaced Joseph as the favorite with Benjamin. And Jacob clings to Benjamin and is not willing to let him go. But anyway, that's another lesson for another day, and it is applicable, believe me. But we see none of this in Joseph. He gave his sons Hebrew names at the height of his prosperity, not in the famine. 
That is key to observe. It wasn't that all of a sudden now the nation had tanked and it's like, whoa, we've got to start depending on God because the famine's here. No, it was at the height of his prosperity that he expressed his faith in God and gave his sons Hebrew names. Well, here's our second principle. Our second principle is that God defines true success as faithfulness. God defines true success as faithfulness. God never asks us to understand our struggles. In fact, we, if we learn anything from the book of Job, we learn that we can understand. Even if it was to explain it, we wouldn't get it. We would still be scratching our head. In fact, we'd be disagreeing with him. He doesn't ask us to understand our struggles. He simply asks us to trust him in daily obedience, in the little things. In the little things. Little things often happen in little places. Which sort of begs the question, who are we living for? Whose applause are we living for? If it's for God's alone, or is it for people? If it's for people, including ourselves, then stadiums full of fans chanting our name would not bring us any satisfaction. Have you ever heard anybody chant your name? Jim, have you ever heard anybody chant your name? Okay, well, today's the day. Let's, let's say it. Jim, 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 Jim. Now, be honest, brother. How does that make you feel? Pretty good? <laughs> the trouble is it's so short-lived. Tomorrow you're going to need us to do it again. It is so short-lived. When we're looking for people to chant our name, and by that I don't literally mean Jim, 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 but rather we need people rather than God. It is... It can be a, a sideline from faithfulness. Who are, whose applause are we seeking, God or people, including ourselves? Initially, Jesus' disciples followed Jesus, not for Jesus, but for themselves. Remember Peter's question? Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? Joseph shows us we need to choose to stay faithful wherever God has put us wherever God has put us. So think about your life for a second. Maybe you've got an advanced degree, but no position. Instead, you find yourself working in a no-name company, doing some menial task, contributing nothing of significant value, in your opinion. Or let's suppose you've raised your children, and now the empty nest has you full of empty days of nothingness. You'd love to serve God if he'd just show you how or where, or you've retired years ago, and you feel set aside by the Lord. You're ready for a change. You've asked God to open the door. You're ready. You're willing. But nothing happens. You're just sitting there at the table, and God hasn't shown up. We all have different situations, but we can all relate to that. Why isn't God using me like I want to be used? And I think our challenge, and believe me, we all feel that way. I feel that way at times. Why isn't God using me the way I, I expected he would? And it's because our challenge is we define what God using us looks like. God may have a different definition. Sometimes God using us is simply us being faithful in a place of obscurity. And because God defines true success as faithfulness. Not as efficiency, not as productivity, but as faithfulness. 
It's hard because we live in a world that is totally opposite that. Our world does not define success as faithfulness. Faithfulness is like, you know, I'll give that illusion, but the reality is success is what we want to define it. Sometimes our dreams and goals for life are just that. Maybe they're good. Maybe they're even godly, but they just may not be God's. Our expectations of life are our expectations of life, not necessarily the Lord's. So if, you, if your heart feels a tug to want to go the direction that everyone else sees as successful and not necessarily what the Lord sees as faithful, remember Joseph, because God takes far more interest in the little things that only he sees, because the little things that he sees occur on the stage that God really cares about, and that's our hearts. The, the platform of true success is our hearts. And if that's the case, then we already have a huge fan base. Jim, you've got a huge fan base. You've got an audience of one, and we all do. And it's the Lord, and he is applauding. Let's pray. How grateful we are, our Father and our God, for Joseph. How did he do it? You poured into him a spirit of trust, a heart of dependence, and gave him insight, amazingly, even in a context where he didn't have the Bible. You gave him a heart to trust you. And as Psalm 105 has shown us, you refined him through these many years in the household of his brothers, in the prison, in the house of Potiphar, and even in the years of prosperity, you refined him. Whether it was temptation, whether it was lack, whether it was abundant blessing, you refined him and tested him until he was ready. Lord, this isn't just our observation of Joseph's life, but through Joseph we see you're doing the same with us. That you work with us in those days that seem meaningless, in the, the years of obscurity and insignificance. The reality is you're looking at our hearts, that we might be faithful in the little things and give you glory where only you see. Thank you, Lord, that if that is the definition, we can glorify you and we can be a true success right here today in whatever uh, walk of life you have called, called us to follow you, whether it's great in the world's eyes or whether it is very simple in the world's eyes. You look at it exactly the same faithfulness. Help us to do that. Thank you for Joseph's example to lead the way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.